Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Your city council likely has more impact on your life than any other government body. However, survey data shows three quarters of Americans do not attend public meetings and fewer than one in five have reached out to local governments in the last year. City councilors may be the most accessible public servants. So what gives? People's busy schedules or lack of understanding about how city councils and their meetings are conducted could in part explain the lack of engagement. Sometimes city council meetings go late into the night or appear dysfunctional with infighting or overwhelmed with voices of angry residents. But they're not only a forum for concerned citizens to voice grievances, but also to ask for help with problems in their neighborhoods or look for recognition for good works from their neighbors. This morning, we'll talk with journalists, a political science professor, and we'll be joined by a Santa Fe city councilor and a community advocate to discuss how city councils function and how residents can engage with local lawmakers. If you have attended a city council meeting, what was your experience? Uh, What kinds of changes could spur more community members to participate? Share your thoughts by emailing letstalk at KUNM.org or call in live at 505 277-5866. Let's bring on our first guest of the morning. Live in the studio with us is Dr. Timothy Krebs, professor of political science at the University of New Mexico. You may remember Professor Krebs from our January show on professionalizing the state legislature. We're happy to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning with what is a city council? Should we think of it as a legislature for a city or town? Absolutely. That's exactly the the definition of a city council. It's the municipality's legislature. So does that mean then that there is usually a separation of powers and a check on power between the council and the mayor, the things we think of in other in other levels of government? Well, the one thing to note, I guess, uh, you know, uh, up front is that there's, there, there are no bicameral city councils uh, in the United States. So it's just one body um, and local, ordinance can, local ordinances can be debated within that body and they can, that the city council can decide what to do with respect to those ordinances and vote them up or down. Um, there, so... The separation of powers question really depends on the form of government in place in a city. So if it's a council manager form of government, there isn't the sort of traditional sort of separation of powers arrangement. Uh, If it's a mayor council form of government like we have in Albuquerque, uh, then there is more of a separation of powers. There's a direct separation of powers between the executive uh, and the legislative branch. So in Albuquerque, does the city council have a relationship with the mayor's office? Uh, yeah, they have a relationship with with the mayor's office, of course. But uh, uh, the mayor can the mayor has has power over the council in the sense that the mayor can can veto um, uh, acts of legislation that the council produces, um, and so it it reflects more of the arrangement that we see at the. The state level and at the national level in terms of in terms of those functions of local government okay well and what about within the council these are political positions with each councilor elected by their local communities does that often create an adversarial relationship within the council itself uh sure it can it, it can because especially in a 
a system like we have here in Albuquerque um, where counselors represent districts. I mean, there can be conflict between counselors uh, over district-related things in terms of them advocating for for their own um, neighborhoods, their own districts. There can be conflict that comes uh, into play there, but there's all there's any number of sort of uh, dimensions upon which conflict might occur. Uh, race and ethnic, uh, race and ethnicity is one thing. Um, age-related uh, differences sometimes come sometimes come into play. Uh, there are partisan differences and ideological differences among council members, and so conflict on the council can can emerge that way. Uh, and of course, there can be conflict between the council and the mayor, um, and and we've seen that in Albuquerque, and we see that in other places, and that's normally sort of healthy differences uh, about how to proceed with regards to public policy issues and responding to uh, challenges in the community. Okay, I was thinking about some of those differences you mentioned, like socioeconomic and uh, ethnic and racial differences, uh, depending on districts. I don't want to get too much into districting and how the districts are drawn, but are they typically, uh, is there an attempt to try to draw them in a way that is balanced or, you know, is the Northeast Heights the Northeast Heights and the South Valley is the South Valley? Do they draw odd shapes to kind of uh, bring in a wide demographic uh, uh, representation generally? Uh, You know, the the same kinds of issues that we see uh, with redistricting uh, in state and national elections, we we, we see that at the local level too in terms of... um, you know, incumbents. If the city council, if the city council is responsible for crafting their own districts, which typically they are, unless there's an independent redistricting commission or something like that, um, yeah, they're usually going to try and protect incumbents uh, in those in those redistricting maps. Um, but you know, um, in, in and in places that are you know racially and ethnically and economically diverse. Uh, they'll, they'll often, those will often be sort of the dimensions on which uh, districts are drawn as well. Okay. So it can play a factor in maybe aggravating some of those tensions among districts, but not always. That's correct. Okay. Uh, I'd like to introduce another guest who might have some insight on some of these structures that you just described, Dr. Krebs. Uh, joining us now in Santa Fe is City Councilor Rene Villarreal. The City Councilor position is a part-time position, which we'll discuss Her other job is with the advocacy organization, NewMexicoWomen.org, as a program co-director. Thanks for coming on the show, Councilor Villarreal. I know you had a city council meeting last night. I hope you weren't up too late. Buenos dias a todos. Um, Thanks for having me. Not too late. Our other guest, Karina, um, was there too. Um, We've had meetings that go to 3 a.m., so I think having a meeting that ends at 10 p.m. is reasonable. Mm It was a late, I mean, I feel like it was late only because we just had a, a important election. And so I think everybody was pretty tired, but yeah. Okay, well, we just heard a little bit about the kinds of structures a city council could have. Santa Fe doesn't exactly fit the ideal model, maybe. In Santa Fe, the mayor joins the city council in meetings, and we refer to it as the governing body. What's the mayor's role in the governing body? Well, first I want to just, um, clarify that we have a we're a home rule city, which means that our charter um, governs us. It's like our local constitution. 
And so any changes we make in structure has to be through um, any charter changes actually have to go through to the voters. And a number of years ago, um, in 2018, we changed the structure to make um, the mayor full-time position and um, a salaried position. And that started, that was initiated or took started to um, take place in 2018. Um, so Mayor Weber was first elected as that first time um, strong mayor that was full-time. Um, but I think what was, was challenging or as I've realized it's been a bit challenging is that on the eight years I've been on council is that um, that it's been an interesting, an interesting, not just dynamic, but the way the governance structure is set up because counselors are still considered quote part-time, even though all of us really work full-time as counselors. Um, we don't have staff. Um, I think that that makes it um, kind of, well, imbalanced in some way because the mayor does have staff, um, is full-time, gets paid full-time, um, also, is in charge of hiring and firing the city manager, city clerk, and city um, attorney. So that, in that way, it's kind of a different structure. Um, and you asked me about him voting with us. I think that's been a good thing um, when the mayor votes with city council um, because I think it's transparent and shows where she or he stands on an issue. And so all of us will be voting on issues. And I think that's been a good thing. Um, but I think the structure needs to be looked at because I don't think they anticipated the imbalance that it's been that's been created now. Yeah, is that power differential palpable? Is it sorry, say pa that again? palpable like you re you really it's 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 important to the function and you feel it. I I think those of us that um have other jobs it definitely we feel it. Um and I don't have anything else to compare it to because we didn't have that kind of structure when I first started. Um but I think what what tends to happen is, at least in this administration, I can only say in this administration, is there's a feeling of not getting access to information, um, an imbalance. When I say imbalance of power, it's just not, we're not there all the time. Um, so sometimes there's things that I think some of us should, um, information that should be shared with all of the counselors. And at least in this case or in this administration, that's not how it's been working. Dr. Krebs. I'm wondering about this kind of, uh, I don't know if it's an odd arrangement with a, a full-time, I guess we can call them the executive uh, staff, the mayor, the city manager, the city attorney, and then part-time counselors that it sounds like have a lot more work to do than they're really being paid for or, or you know, uh, allotted. Is that, is that something we see in Every, other places? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. I mean, unless you've got a full-time city council and, you know, those... You know, full-time city councils are <clears throat> are in place in the largest cities in the country, uh, but you know, below that level, you you do see this this imbalance of power, whether it's a council manager system or or a mayor council system between part-time elected officials, which are you know city councilors, uh, and the full-time mayors or city managers that are running the day-to-day -day affairs of of local government and. Um, yeah, I mean, being a city councilor uh, in the United States is a very is a very difficult job because, um, uh, uh, as as your other guest uh, mentioned, um, you know, the, the people have full time jobs and they're doing this they're doing this part time and in their off hours and meetings run late and it's and you're getting calls 
calls from constituents and text messages and emails and so forth from constituents. You run into them in the grocery store. I mean, mayors are subject to that as well. But uh, um, yeah, it's a difficult it's a difficult task. Is that true for Albuquerque that the city councilors are part time? They generally have other jobs. And yeah, they're, they're yeah they're 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 part time. Um, and you ask any one of them, and they're 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 devoting a lot of hours to their to their work. Uh, Councilor Real, Via Real, you have a, a response? Oh, I was just going to say the difference for Albuquerque City Council is that they have staff, full-time mm-hmm. staff. Each councilor has a poly, policy analyst, yep. and that makes a huge difference, not just for um, constituents accessing information and setting up meetings and responding to mm-hmm. constituent needs while councilors are potentially at their other job, and I think that's the big difference for that's us. Yeah. I mean, difference um, from city council from Albuquerque to Santa Fe. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. They do have they do have some staff. It's not a, you know it's not equal to to the mayor's staff and the mayor's operation. Uh, but yeah, they definitely have they have staff that can help on policy questions, especially and and it's just basic constituent relations. Uh, and they also get paid. Councilor Villarreal, are you paid by the hour? <laughs> no, if I got paid by the hour, I was probably making eight dollars an hour. <laughs> um, but I think we do get we get, do get paid. It's set at the state legislature. Um, the pay is thirty nine thousand for part time, um, and it's that's also applies to city. Um, sorry, county commissioners. I think Albuquerque might be the same. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that might sound good if you were part time, but we're not part time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Krebs. Uh, I was I was just going to point out, yeah, that the, you know Albuquerque has an independent salary commission that sets the salaries for the mayor and for the councilors, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit it's north of that that figure uh, according to recent a recent change. So. Okay, uh, let's pause the conversation for just a moment. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on eighty nine point nine KUNM. I'm Kave Movahead. We're taking your calls about city councils. Call us at five zero five two seven seven five eight six six. We'll be right back. It's time to elect four people to the KUNM Radio Board, and you're invited to nominate yourself. We welcome people from all walks of life, and a broad array of points of view are encouraged. Nominations must be in by 5 p.m. February 15th. Email to KUNMelect at unm.edu or mail to University Secretary Scholes Hall, UNM 87131. Nominations may not be hand-delivered. For complete info on the KUNM Radio Board elections, call 505-277-4664 or visit KUNM.org in the About tab. Climate change appears to be making for more rapidly intensifying storms like Hurricane Otis that recently killed dozens in Mexico. Otis was a spectacular storm, which was in many ways a worst case for weather forecasting, and it formed over exceptionally warm waters in the eastern North Pacific. I'm Steve Kerwood. How the changing climate is disrupting forecasting next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Wednesday mornings at 8 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kave Movahead. Email your comments to letstalk at KUNM.org. On next week's show, we'll have local chefs, farmers, and foodies talking about favorite fall dishes and how to prepare all those root vegetables. Watch our webpage for details. Today, though, we're talking about how city councils work for their communities. We have Dr. Timothy Krebs, UNM professor of political science with us, as well as city councilor from Santa Fe, Rene Villarreal. Uh, Councillor Villarreal, let's talk uh, a little bit more about your city council. 
We've seen politics become more divisive nationally in recent years. Is that also the case in local Santa Fe city government? Uh, I would say so. I'm interested to hear what Karina says because Karina comes to our meetings all the time. Um, you know, it's I think for a few reasons that's the case. Um, pandemic really did a number on um, just people feeling connected um, during that time of the pandemic. I think it was hard even knowing what was happening um, in the city council unless you attended or you could be on Zoom with us. Um, and there was just a lot a lot happening. And so I think that, that that's kind of created or maybe exacerbated certain things that people were feeling that were un, um, that they wanted the city council to address. Um, I think internally, um, again, because we have a different structure and um, a different way of leading, that I think it has been creating what I see as kind of a divide um, among counselors, not so much in a way that I, I, I just think that there's a need for more unity and that usually comes from the top. And when counselors feel like they're not, and I would speak for myself, when I feel like I don't, or not, I'm not getting the information I need to be able to inform my constituents about what's happening, then it creates mistrust and it creates a feeling that, well, I call it lateral violence. I was talking to Karina about that. Lateral violence to me is a form of bullying um, where you are purposely not um, given information you need. You're purposely excluded um, for certain reasons. Um, and I guess I'm seeing that more um, in this second um, term of mine with this a different administration. It didn't feel like this at the beginning, but I think yeah, I think there's, it's hard to govern during a time like a pandemic and a crisis like that. And I also feel like there's ways to try to unify and um, and there are better ways of, of getting community, well, for one, informing your own counselors and the governing body so that everybody's getting access, the same access to information, so that we then can give information back to our constituents. I think you might be hinting specifically towards uh, a recent, I don't know if I should call it a scandal, an event in Santa Fe where there was a letter from the state to the city, to the mayor's office uh, regarding use of state funds, and it was not shared with the council, um, and there's been a little blowback. Definitely blowback. Um, that was, you know, a month of not having that information um, and then being told about it before it hit the papers the next day. Um, that's in my opinion, unacceptable. And to our constituents, you know, they want to know what's happening. And that's just, that's one of many, that one was just the probably one of the few that got put out in public. Um, yeah, I just, I think it's hard when, I just think the bet we're, we're better off if everybody has access to information so that we can inform the public um, so they know what's happening. Okay. You just mentioned Karina Julig, who is uh, on the Zoom with us. I was going to introduce her a little later, but let's go ahead and bring her in now and kind of take her take on that. She is the uh, City Beat reporter with the Santa Fe New Mexican. Uh, she was up late watching the city council meeting last night. So thanks for joining us. I guess not too late, right? You got out at 10? It's all relative. So yeah, 10 p.m. <laughs> I'll happily take. Okay. Uh I wonder what your what you've seen, what your experience is with the the uh, mm, 
digging in on rhetoric or uh, political bias or lateral violence, like uh, the city councilor just mentioned? Have you seen these sorts of things? What do they look like? Yeah, um, well, you know, I I am new to um, to the paper. I joined over the summer, so you know, I can't you know draw on on you know a ton of of background over how things potentially have changed over time. Um, you know, I will say I think that the issues that the council brought up um, are common on a lot of um, you know local government entities. Um, there's a lot of um, you know, I saw a lot of kind of similar issues on, you know, school boards and, you know, other city councils in um, other cities I've worked in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really do think that it does seem like, you know, more recently, um, you know, has been kind of a, a growing frustration over some of the, um, the transparency issues that the, the councilor mentioned. Um, and that's among among the city council, but also among, um, you know, residents and the the people who were running for for council over this past election that was um you know you almost could have made a a game out of you know how many times candidates said you know the word transparency or accountability it was really um you know top of mind i think for um a lot of people and um yeah maybe that kind of um you know shows that yeah there's a, a growing sense of um you know frustration potentially um with kind of, you know, the the information or lack of information potentially that is um, being provided. And it sounds like a lot of this is coming back to the idea or the issue of trust. Dr. Krebs, are we seeing the same kind of uh, rhetoric in Albuquerque? Well, I mean, you know, the, the issue of trust is, is, is critical to all... To, to virtually everything when you're making collective decisions. I mean, if you don't have trust in the people that you're working with, um, you know, within within your within within your own space, let's say it's a city council, uh, you're going to struggle to make decisions in a, in a way that's uh, you know that's collegial, that's forward looking, you know, that that doesn't uh, sort of poison the well for the future. And, and and certainly, if you don't have trust with with the executive, uh, that's gonna that's going to um, create problems as well. But I want to just step back just for a minute and sort of put some of this into a, into a broader context. So there are about, there are about 14,000 school boards. Um, Karina mentioned school boards. There are about 14,000 school boards in the United States. There are 3,100 um, counties in the United States that, have, that all have elected commissions. Uh, 19,000 cities. So they all have city councils. Um, so, so we have these local legislators across parts of the government. Uh, there's significant. There's a, a huge number of people who run for these offices or are in these part-time policymaking roles, um, and and they all sort of do similar things in terms of representation, lawmaking, and and oversight of the executive branch, which. Um, Councilor Villarreal was talking about, um, you know, the issue of, of information sharing, that sort of, that gets to oversight of the executive. Um, and if there's, you know, if there's a lack of information sharing or, or a perception that there's a lack of information sharing, they can't, they can't do their jobs as representatives and as lawmakers, um, that makes governing really difficult and fraught. I wonder then, does that lack of trust or fighting, does that impact interest in local participation by citizens? 
Well, I, I, I don't know that we have any information on that. I mean, there are other explanations for why people are, are, are not engaged in, in local government. Uh, if you look at, you know, turnout rates and so forth, you say, well, they don't, people aren't interested in local government, even though it's the, the level of government that's closest to the people and that arguably has the, the most uh, direct day-to-day effect on our, our lives. Um, you know, one of the things about local governments is that most local governments in the United States, city governments and, and almost all school boards, are nonpartisan. And so that makes it difficult for, for citizens, for residents, uh, uh, constituents to sort of get a sense of, of what's going on and who the key players are and, um, you know, what's at stake, um, you know, in, in, in the process itself. Um, you know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that we have elections that are held in, in off years. Uh, so we have, we had an election uh, on Tuesday. It's, you know, it's an odd numbered year. It's an off year. Um, and so we don't, we don't see a lot of engagement in those off years. We get more engagement during presidential election years. Uh, that's where we have the most engagement politically in the United States. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about some of the turnout numbers in, in the this week's election. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to go back to Councillor Villarreal. What kinds of changes in Santa Fe city government structure would foster better outcomes in city council business? Well, that's the... That's the golden question. I think we're trying, we're grappling with that. And I don't know what that change, well, first I would say (laughs) our city councilor, our city council and the councilors should be allowed to, and we should budget for um, having a staff person, even if they're they're part-time. I think that would help and it would be fair to our constituents so that um, the, the responses are um, more efficient. Um, I feel like the volume of of calls, emails has probably doubled since the time I, I've been on council. And I don't know if that's because people know that, you know, respond to or reach out to their counselors when they know they're res- their response, their responsive to them, or it's just the level of um, discourse or people wanting to voice their um, opinions about you know services or policy making so i think it would help to have um staff people or counselors um the other thing is just kind of reevaluating the structure of how the city manager city count or city manager city attorney and city um, clerk are hired um, because right now they are hired and fired um, at the will of the mayor and so I feel like there's sometimes they end up being the fall person. Um, so in the in the case of what we, we were talking about, the access to information about our audit, um, our city manager took the fall on that. And I don't actually think that he made that decision. So I think that if we were able to hire and fire um, those three major positions, that it would feel a lot better in terms of um, access to information and power um, and feel like, you know, some of the legislation that right now, some of us, it feels like it's being caught up and we're not being able to move legislation um, and other people and other things get pushed forward, that the, there would be a better or more equitable way to um, kind of work together for for the common good. So I don't know how that look, what that looks. That would definitely be a, a maybe a charter amendment for Santa Fe, but I think that's a good starting place. 
Okay, well, there was a lot there. Uh, I want to go ahead and ask a question to our listeners. What would make you participate more in local government? Uh, call 505-277-5866 or email us at letstalk at org. Among those things you just uh, talked about were kind of engagement with residents. Um, I think this is a good time then to bring in our next guest. Joining by Zoom is Tomas Rivera, the executive director of Chainbreaker Collective, an economic and environmental justice organization in Santa Fe that started with a focus on affordable transportation and housing in the growing city. But you branched out a bit. Thanks for joining us this morning, Tomas. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, as a Santa Fe-based organization, y'all have spent a lot of time with the city's governing body. What kinds of projects have you helped with, uh, helped bring from the community to City Hall? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Chainbreaker is a membership-led economic environmental justice organization here in Santa Fe. Um, We have over 800 dues-paying members, the bulk of whom are low-income people of color, um, dealing with issues like access to transit and transportation, um, uh, gentrification and housing instability. And so when we look at uh, the work that we do, it really is broader than just an administration or a a term that we have. Uh, Chainbreaker's been doing this work for, um, we're about to turn 20 in a couple months here, so uh, two decades, and we are uh, aware that our work is going to last much longer than that. So um, looking at deep Deeply rooted systemic change, I think, is hard to shift. But what we do know is that a city like Santa Fe allows us more access to our elected officials than many other cities we see around the country. Um, And for, you know, for all the the frustrations and imperfections that have been talked about, um, Santa Fe is pretty progressive. And um, we are able to get responses from um, city city officials and city councilors um, much better than a lot of our friends and allies around the country. Uh, I know Chainbreaker did a lot of door knocking uh, to talk about the excise tax on million dollar plus homes that voters passed this week. How do you get regular people to participate in door knocking? And then how do you get the people on the other side of the door to engage and follow through? Well, I mean, uh, Chainbreaker does community organizing. We believe in the power of organizing. Um, so all of our all of our members are deep, are directly impacted by the work that we do. And so the uh, affordable housing excise tax that just got passed in Santa Fe, um, we did. Uh, we've been working on affordable housing issues for, like I said, decades. And so our members are aware of of how that works, of how the need is for that, what things like the Affordable Housing Trust Fund does, and have directly benefited from it. So it's actually not hard when people have a direct investment in the work that's happening to engage and organize people. So our members were out there talking to neighbors. We knocked on um, about 3,500 doors. Um, and we engaged about half of those folks answered their doors with us. So, but that's not just this one election. That is uh, years and years of doing that kind of outreach work that was ready to mobilize people for record turnout that we saw last, or I guess Tuesday night. Well, Chainbreaker is really good then at organizing the community, but then how does that translate into engagement with the local government? I mean, I think this is an example. Uh, so, uh, after after. You know, there was a previous attempt at doing a similar tax here in Santa Fe 14 years ago. And so the need for affordable housing is one that everybody talks about. The details of how it happens and who is who winds up benefiting from it is something that 
comes from long-term deep community engagement, talking to city officials, um, talking to not just the elected officials, but city staff people, um, department heads, really getting into the details, knowing that sometimes on from the higher up levels, people can um, not understand what it's like on the ground. So getting our members who are experiencing that every day to engage in it has really been critical. Um, and I think that, you know, organizing has allowed um, community members who aren't impacted to have access to elected officials, city staff, people, and policymakers. And so, um, but it is long term. Okay, we just had a caller, Kim, who unfortunately was in the car and could not hang on the line. Uh, but she says uh, she's reached out to an Albuquerque city councilor and gotten no response. She's gotten conflicting responses from the mayor's office. And she asks, what's the point of trying to participate? I think. Councillor Villarreal, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I think that's a valid concern um, to be able to try to to work on an issue um, and then not get a response. I, I don't know the situation in Albuquerque. Um, I think for, in my case, I, I try to respond as often as possible. Um, but again, I'm limited to my part-time status. I have another job. And so there's some things, especially like emails or messages that sometimes can fall through the cracks. Um, I think there should be a better mechanism for folks to be able to air their concerns. Um, you know, I think we have a option or a place on our agenda for petitions from the floor, but again, two minutes isn't always enough to be able to explain the situation. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, I don't know the perfect answer for that. I feel like there's um, we need to do better the way I could do better is if I had somebody help me <laughs> in, in a staff capacity. Um, because I do feel like city councilors, we're conduits to community voice. We're reflecting what we're hearing from our constituents. Um, I do want to say that there's times that people have a very local and isolated issue, and it's very personal and more individual for them. It's not really it's not really looking at kind of the global holistic perspective, um, you know, and so I think when the way we can be conduits, better conduits to community voices when either groups or organizations are telling us about an issue and they're coming forth to try to solve an issue and have have also solutions because we're only as good as our community members, you know, we, we don't have all the answers. Um, I think finding solutions and working with community groups to find solutions is an probably a more um, effective way to try to find, you know, to look at policy making. Okay. I will mention that we had an email from a listener, David, who had one of those kind of specific concerns, and he wanted to talk about authority over the Soldiers Monument obelisk. I feel like that's probably a bigger conversation than we have time for right now, but I do want to acknowledge, David, thank you for writing in, um, and we'll see how we can follow up on that in the future. Uh, Dr. Krebs, we have some kind of an outline for what city councils look like and how they function, but is there an ideal for how residents should engage with the council? People come to give public comments at meetings, but is that it? You know, I, I, I just want to say, you know, one of the things we know is that, that city councils do, do a good job of representing their, their constituents in general. So the research sort of shows that they do a, they do a really good job. They're, they're, and they're most active in that, in that function uh, on the council. They do, a, they do a less good job in terms of directing cities on, on policy 
And for all the reasons that have been discussed so far this morning, um, you know, lack of staff, lack of information, it's very difficult to craft uh, policy solutions to difficult problems when you are a part-time official and you lack information and support. Um, and so, so, so we do that. We, we do see that in, in, in the research. Is there an ideal way to, to, to provide representation? I don't, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, state legislators and members of Congress, you know, they have the same, they have the same kinds of uh, basic pressures, um, you know, on them. They've got, they're getting calls from constituents. They're hearing from constituents. It could be individuals who have, who have a, a problem that's just unique to them. There could be groups, organizations that have issues that are of broader import. Um, and so, you know, executing that just under the best of circumstances is a, is a difficult, is a difficult task. And so when you layer on top of that sort of part-time officials who've got full-time jobs, like a family responsibilities, all these kinds of things, lack staff, it makes it, it does, it does make it, it does make it really difficult. And so some of those things could potentially be addressed by, Again, providing staff, or uh, you know, sa uh, you know, increasing salaries, um, making the position a bit more full time, um, but that that gets us into a whole nother uh, show, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to have to hold right there for just a moment. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on eighty nine point nine KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Stay right there. We'll be back in just a minute. Support comes from New Mexico Magazine. The November issue features a spa getaway, The Flight of the Cranes at Bosque del Apache, lessons from Dine, Chief, Walter, Whitewater, and Christmas in Cloudcroft. Details at newmexicomagazine.org. KUNM programming is made possible by supporting members from Las Vegas, Taos, and many other communities large and small. No matter where you call home, thank you for your generosity. KUNM, powered by you. Franz Schubert was shorter than most people, a little bit self-conscious and socially awkward. His friends affectionately called him Schwammerl, the little mushroom. Schubert shared himself with his friends through music that many of us still treasure two centuries later. Music by The Little Mushroom on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Should city councilors be professional public servants? Or is it better for them to be regular people from the community? Call 505-277-5866 to share your ideas. I want to go back to Tomas Rivera from Chainbreaker Collective. We talked about Chainbreaker's advocacy for the new excise tax on high-end homes. What does your work look like when there isn't an election near? And how will you maintain a relationship with the city council and city government? Yeah, thank you. I, you know, um, Chainbreaker doesn't do a lot of work around elections. We're a 501c3 organization. We do voter guides generally to uh, educate folks about positions of people running on our issues. Um, but most of the time, our work is actually the day-to-day -day sort of grind of policymaking. Some of the things that people were talking about um, before around uh, affordable housing, around anti-displacement work. And, um, you know, a lot of the work that Chainbreaker has been focusing on uh, over the last, I would say, five years is centered around a city-owned piece of property, Midtown here in Santa Fe, and how the effects of development on this property, it's 64 acres of land right in the heart of Santa Fe, directly adjacent to one of the lowest income uh, neighborhoods which with the highest density of people of color, right for gentrification. 
And so those nuances take a real long time. So we've been focusing on smaller policies, um, larger initiatives that we want to see, working on things like dealing with trying to confront the um, tsunami of evictions that is beginning post, I don't know if we're post-pandemic, but post um, whatever phase of the pandemic happens. Um, and that really takes, again, those longer-term relationship buildings. Um, and so the elections are kind of the every couple of years, big just events that happen. They're a way to visibilize a lot of the work that's been happening over the years. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I hear I wanted to speak to, to the uh, person that asked about what's the point. I think that we hear that question a lot because a lot of our members are really deeply impacted by this work. They're facing evictions. Their, their rent sometimes gets doubled or tripled from one month to the next and do reach out to people in power and ask for help. I think that it's 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 important to understand that we're dealing with deeply rooted systemic issues and that can't be solved by one person or, or one at a time. And I think that there are advocacy organizations that work to support those individuals. What Chainbreaker does is want to change the system so we can confront the circumstances that create that in the first place. So things like the election that happened a couple nights ago is one step towards it, but there are many you know, resolutions, ordinances, uh, steps along the way. Um, and you know the turnout that we see to me is a is a victory for community organizing. There was people knocking on doors. Like I said, we knocked on thousands of doors. Other organizations um, were also out there. So low turnout to me isn't an effect of disinterest. It's an effect of a lack of organizing. Okay, Councillor Villarreal, we got another email from David who wants to know when is a better time than now to discuss this issue. So my producer and I quickly discussed it, and we're going to try to give it a minute uh, for a response from you. David says, why did the Santa Fe governing body think that it had legal jurisdiction over the Soldiers Monument, especially after passing Resolution 2002-21? I don't know if you know that one, but... Uh, David says it's stating that they should follow their own, own archaeological and historical ordinances. Can you respond? Well, it's hard to. That's a very long conversation, and also that's in court right now, so I think we wouldn't have time to really talk about that. Okay. Yeah, I think. Well, uh, we, are, we are given information, um, you know, and especially in in matters like that that are a lot more complex. Um, is you know we have to defer to our city attorneys um, to be able to research those kind of more complex jurisdictional um, situations. So, okay, there's uh, more to be said about that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for trying, and we will, David, dedicate more time to this in the future. Uh, I'd like to bring in our last guest this morning on the phone with us is Elena Mensinger. She covers City Hall for the Albuquerque Journal. And she was up late last night at a city council meeting. Thanks for joining us, Elena. Hi, Kabe. Thanks for having me. How late were you up last night? When did the council meeting end in Albuquerque? Um, council got done a little after one. Um, and then I had a long drive to Tierra afterwards, so a very late night. Um, also, I am pet sitting four parrots right now. So if you hear a squawk, <laughs> I'm very sorry. I don't apologize. I think since the pandemic, uh, we have grown to love dogs barking and children crying and all of those sounds of real life in the background. <laughs> uh, do you have a sense of the relationship among council members in Albuquerque? Are they friendly? Are they even friends in some cases? You know, I think there are a lot of different coalitions that form within the council as far as voting blocks. Um, 
I mean, I would say, yes, you know, they all have to work together and they all will become allies on certain issues and they will all work together on certain different issues. And in certain certain cases, they will disagree. Um, in a lot of cases, they'll disagree. But you'll see a different mix of people sponsoring and supporting different legislation. So it, it has been interesting to see how those relationships play out over the past five or so months that I've been covering city council. Okay, there was a chance to upset the ideological balance of the Albuquerque Council this week. Uh, the races are nonpartisan, but most candidates' affiliations are clear from their endorsements. Republican incumbent Brooke Bassan eked out a win in a very tight race in a traditionally conservative district. Tell us about that. So there was there was a lot of speculation about what this election might mean for the balance of the of the council. Um, and there was some thoughts it could maybe shake things up. It ended up really kind of keeping the status quo um, as far as that breakdown is. Currently, council is pretty much evenly divided between conservatives and liberals. And there is, you know, some variation in those groups. There are some people that are more moderate and are more centrist. And so that's what that's what I'm saying about those different coalitions that form um, on different issues. You can see a moderate side um, with people who are from the other party. Um, again, yes, you said the, the races are technically nonpartisan, but you know it does inform a lot of their policy, the policies they push for, the policies they oppose, the policies they support. Um, so it ended up in every district that was up for election, um, the balance of those parties are going to stay the same. In District 6, um, regardless of who wins the runoff, we're going to have a Democrat replacing Pat Davis. In District 8, we had Republican Dan Champagne replaced Trudy Jones. Brooke Passon, the Republican incumbent, like you said, um, eked out a win in a very nail-biter race on Tuesday. And um, then in District 2, Isaac Benton will also be replaced by a Democrat. Now, you mentioned that we have a runoff election coming to settle District 6. What are you hearing regarding the time or cost of runoffs? You know, this is my first election season that I'm covering, and this is also the first runoff. Um, I think both candidates have said that they are ready to go, ready for round two. Um, It is a lot of work because suddenly it's a smaller field. Um, and I think both of them are, are planning to kind of up the ante as far as the campaign. Okay, Dr. Krebs, what about money? We heard Mayor Keller say recently that runoffs bring more funds into campaigns. Does that strengthen concerns about democracy being for sale? Uh, uh, no. Candidates that are in the, you know, the public financing system, uh, you know, that's not, uh, that's not going to be a- an issue. Um, if candidates are privately financed, uh, then, it, then, it, then it could be. One of the things we know about runoff elections is that turnout tends to decrease, it tends to drop between the first election and, and, and the runoff. Um, and so that's, that's likely to happen again, which is, which is a sort of problem for democracy because we have low turnout to begin with. Uh, in the initial contest. Which voters come back to vote in a runoff? Who does it favor? Uh, it, well, you know, theoretically, you, you've got, you know, uh, you've got a candidate, um, you know, you've got a candidate who, who leads the who leads the election, and then you've got voters who were, you know, theoretically opposed to that candidate because they voted, they voted for somebody else. But we don't know uh, if those voters, if their second choice was the leading candidate, 
uh, if their second choice was uh, the candidate who came in second place. Um, and so this is this is sort of one of the issues that uh, gets addressed with ranked choice voting, which they have in Santa Fe and other cities are starting to adopt now. Yeah, well, Pat Davis said this week it will cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was pushing for ranked choice voting. Let's jump to Karina Julig from the Santa Fe, New Mexican, um, because Santa Fe does now have ranked choice voting specifically to avoid having a runoff. Uh, and it did play a part in the election this week, right? Um, it did, yeah. There was um, one um, one race that came into play, which was the um, the District 1 race. It was actually the race for, um, you know, who is going to succeed um, Councilwoman Villarreal, um, who is stepping down. And there were four candidates in that race. Okay, and, and so there was a winner on election night. Uh, because of ranked choice voting. My producer just sent in a note. In 2021, two city council races in Albuquerque required a runoff. That election cost the city $610,424. So it's not cheap. No, it's uh, not cheap. <laughs> Dr. Krebs, I've heard people say that ranked choice can appear complicated to voters. Is there any question of fairness in the system? Uh, you know, complexity in elections is not... Is, is not a, not a sort of a, a, in some in, in a general sense complexity in elections is not a friend of democracy i mean we, you know so there there is concern about about the complexity of ranked choice voting but um uh you know places that places that do it again it's relatively new in the american scene um cities cities that do it and you know have done it for a few cycles it seems i, I haven't seen any evidence of of real problems with respect to to, to voter confusion, um, you know, after, after a time of, of using re- rank, the ranked choice process. Could it work in Albuquerque? It could. Okay. Uh, Karina, there seems to be this enduring tension in Santa Fe politics regarding who's an outsider and who is, you know, quote, one of us. Many Santa Fans view the mayor, for instance, as an outsider. Did this kind of rhetoric or dog whistle come up in any of the campaigns this year? Um. I think in a sense it did. I mean, something that did kind of jump out to me on the the campaign trail was, um, you know, I think pretty much um, almost all of the candidates campaigning. You know, one of the the first things they said at, at forums or kind of in their their literature was, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a native Santa Fean. I was born and raised here. I have deep roots here. Um, that's something that is clearly, um, you know, really important to um, a lot of people in town. I think when they're considering. Um, to support and you know with a, a city that's over you know 400 years old there's a lot of um uh you know history and and culture that that comes into play for certain councillor villarreal would you like to speak to those kinds of uh i guess we can call that a, a a cultural demand right in santa fe that uh candidates identify um as santa Fe. well it was interesting for district one um for folks running for my seat, um, they were all locals, people that grew up in Santa Fe, all people of color. Um, so that was an interesting mix. Um, District 1 isn't usually like that. Um, I think when it comes to trying to understand the complexities of our history and culture, um, that people could do, I mean, whether you're been there you know, for generations um, or folks that have just moved to Santa Fe, it's just important to know and really inform ourselves about the complex histories. Um, and and it, you know, whether you're new or, or you've been there a long time, I think not everybody's on the same page. Um, 
And I guess I just wish more people would um, inform themselves. Um, I think one thing that's been frustrating for me is the um, history of Santa Fe and not having anybody talk about the white colonization um, and the history around that. It's always been about Hispano and indigenous and native folks. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of us are very mixed folks or are, you know, those that have been here a long time. And um, so we're mestizos, we're th through and through. And so I guess I'm just always wanting it to be more layered, like to understand that there's a lot of different layers. And um, that's what's hard to convey. I think, you know, just for me personally, I think a lot of us didn't have great New Mexico history um, lessons and understanding of our history. Um, and that's that's unfortunate. And I had to learn what I learned based on, you know, learning and reading books about our history. So I think it would help for candidates to and politicians, elected officials to really try to understand our complexities in order to be able to understand where people are coming from, because sometimes it's not about an actual monument or st or structure it's about people feeling invisibilized for generations okay we only have about 30 seconds left and we've talked around voter turnout for the whole show uh city or i'm sorry bernalillo county clerk linda stover said voter turnout was just over 19 percent she called it sad uh, Karina, what about in Santa Fe? Half the city council is up for grabs, affecting every district. But what was it that drove people to the polls? Um, you know, according to information we got, more people voted for the high-end excise tax than voted for the, the four city council districts combined. Um, over um, 20,000 people voted for that, um, which is more than voted for what was kind of previously considered a, a high watermark election in 2017 regarding a, a soda tax. Okay, I'm going to have to cut you off right there. We've reached the end of the hour. Thanks to everyone who called in or emailed us. And a big thank you to our guests, Tim Krebs, Rene Villarreal, Elena Mensinger, and Karina Julig. KUNM will keep following local politics. Follow us on Facebook, search for KUNM Radio. And on Instagram, we're KUNM News. You can always email your thoughts on today's show to letstalk at KUNM.org. We'll have today's audio up on our website soon so you can share or listen again. You can also get the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast on Apple Podcasts podcasts or Spotify. Next week, we'll talk to some New Mexico chefs, farmers, and foodies about their favorite fall recipes. Share yours or ask questions. We'll, we'll be here next week on the same, same time and same channel. Our engineer today is Marino Spencer. Mia Casas handled the phones and Megan Kamrick produced the show. I'm Kaveh Movahead for Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNF.